You're listening to the Planet Earth 2072 podcast from City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Louisiana Basin has now gotten more than 43 days of rain and it doesn't appear to be slowing down. Flooding from New Orleans and all the way to Hammond has brought a lot of businesses to a halt. Orange crops for the year are in danger of being decimated. The winter storm that froze much of the South over the past couple of months has taken a toll on whatever growers were hoping to salvage after another bad year. Congress continues to debate over the climate action bill, now ballooning to more than $3 trillion. The Wilson Republican Party continues to hold fast against the current bill. Meanwhile, President Katherine Emerson says that she is ready to do whatever is within her power to make this bill happen. Cities all across the U.S. are experiencing the highest temperatures ever. In Dallas, the thermostat popped up at 106. In Boise, it got as hot as 103. And down in Miami, it was a blistering 105 degrees with a heat index of over 114. Now proclaims many of the coastal regions of Vietnam, especially the Vung Tau area, a disaster zone. Hundreds of thousands of residents have been forced out of their homes as floodwaters remain also, sitting in Miami's place mayor now. mayor is calling for the state and the federal governments to do more to help. The October King Tide is the worst ever as waters have reached more than three feet across Miami Beach and parts of Miami-Dade. The current seawall is not working in the pump system has been working non-stop for more than five years. struggle with mudslides as rough weather lingers over the city. They have now experienced more than three straight weeks of rain. People have left many parts of town because they're afraid of the mudslides taking them away and washing them into the ocean. Some are staying in their homes to protect whatever they own. Meanwhile, ports in Cuba remain closed as flooding in the streets of Havana worsens. Tens of thousands have... Hundreds, if not thousands of communities around the world that are going to see dramatic change in the coming century because of the climate crisis. But there's one city that seems to get a lot more attention than others, probably because it's a glamour city, an international city. It has a lot of money, and it's going to likely be one of the first to disappear. So there's no secret why the rest of the world is closely watching how Miami is handling the rising seas. Rising sea levels are threatening America's coasts. Climate scientists have developed this simulation showing an extreme scenario where sea levels rise roughly 10 to 12 feet. Ground zero is Miami, Florida. You would have to take that house and put it on stilts probably 10 feet tall if you want it to last for the next 30 years. But as wealthy waterfront communities become uninhabitable, Haitians built this place yes. and you're getting kicked out. Yes. The residents pushed out of their homes are not just the ones in the path of rising waters. Pay 1800 in five days or you have to leave. Are you scared? Yes, I'm scared. Welcome to Base Camp Little Haiti at the Magic City Innovation District. This is our immersive art park. What are we looking at here? This was our first piece of evidence to prove that climate change. Florida in general knows how to handle a hard hit from Mother Nature. There have been some really powerful hurricanes that have pounced on the Sunshine State, and I've been through a lot of them. 
especially this one really powerful storm called Andrew. Yeah, we have just been told that some people in Dade are beginning to lose power. Well, whatever dumb luck we had has ended here. The power just went out throughout all of this Hallandale area. The intense part of the storm right now is coming ashore at, at South Miami, uh, Cocoa Plum area, uh, the, the uh, Gables Estates, Gables by the Sea, uh, all, all that kind of area, just south of the University of Miami. But storms don't hit Florida every year. Sometimes the state can go years without even being touched. One thing that Florida is still learning how to handle, though, rising seas. A hurricane will come through, create a lot of damage, but everyone just rebuilds. Rising seas is a different situation. Consistent flooding is very different. It's a big challenge. But I don't think Miami will disappear, unless, of course, the oceans rise like 10 feet, then all of South Florida's gone. Miami has a lot of money, and that means a lot of it will be saved, but at a cost. Those with means will find a way to thrive. Many minority communities will struggle to even live in the city as Mother Nature starts taking more and more of the prime real estate. In this episode, we're going to talk with Professor Ben Kurtman of the University of Miami about the challenge of strengthening hurricanes, how rising seas will actually take Miami, and what he thinks the future holds for the Magic City. We'll also hear from Gen Zer Maya Gauda, who wants to make sure that those communities that struggle to make ends meet are not shoved out. Is Miami, is South Florida the epicenter, as you said it is? So I guess, you know, is it that this is going to be what we do whether we're successful or not in, in protecting this region or what happens to this region, this is kind of what the rest of the world is looking at. They're looking at us and it's like, that's going to be it. Yeah. We're, we're, we're the exemplar. And, you know, uh, we have an opportunity here to uh, be the exemplar for the nation or for the world even in how to uh, adapt and mitigate uh, the challenges associated with climate change, but also just, you know, natural variability of climate. You know, we've been dealing with, with hurricanes for years during uh, big El Nino's, uh, uh, the southern tier of the U.S. Is, is much wetter than normal, Florida included. During La Nina's, there tends to be a winter drought. Uh, uh, all of those, all of those things, we can be exemplars for how how to deal with those things if we if we choose to. You know, I wondered in all the years you've been doing this, um, I wanted to know from you what you've seen in the attitudes of people towards this issue and how it's changed over the years. And do you think we're going in the right direction? Uh, well, when I first came to uh, UM in, in, in Florida, um, I was uh, uh, honestly surprised at how much resistance there was in terms of even allowing people to talk about climate change, you know, government side, you know, state scientists and, and just people, a lot of reluctance to even talk about climate change and the sea level rise challenge. Um, but in, in my time here, I think it's close to 15 years now, that has radically changed. Uh, uh, it's part of the ether. It's part of the conversation. Uh, and people are really, are, are, are really willing to talk about it. Politicians, uh, uh, decision makers and you know the person on the street is very concerned about this problem. Uh, are, are we're starting to move in the right direction? We're starting to have the difficult conversations that need to you know we need to have conversations about 
what part of the built infrastructure are we going to continue to invest to maintain in in face of the chronic challenges associated with sea level rise and what part of the infrastructure are we going to return to its natural environment those are really really challenging questions they need to be informed by the best available science that's what i believe is my job but they're they require community building. They require those. They're generational to answer those questions. It it takes years to come to come to closure on some of those issues, and uh, we're I think we're we're getting started on that conversation, but we're not we're not getting started fast enough. And I don't I don't I don't think we have enough buy-in. But the conversation, you know, and the bottom line is the conversation has totally changed since I've been here. Um, you know, uh, when you think about uh, some of the just just as one example, uh, over the years, Florida has hardened itself for hurricanes. You know, they're a big challenge. They make a big mess, lots of flooding. But we've hardened. We know how to harden ourselves. That you know, we tie down our roofs. We we uh, uh, we 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 uh, have lots of insurance. We manage we manage to harden ourselves for the for the hurricane challenge. We haven't fully hardened ourselves for the chronic problem of sea level rise. People, you know, I go out and give these climate change talks and people come up to me afterwards, should I sell my house? When, when do I need to sell my house? I, you know, I can't answer that, of course. But but people, you, that what's embedded in that question is people have this sense that they haven't hardened themselves for the sea level rise challenge. They and I, and, and I want to get to that. I want to get to the, you know, what the cities, what cities in the region are doing. But, uh, you know, I wondered, one of the things I know when I talk to people about the issue of climate change is I think a lot of times uh, what I hear is that climate change, well, that's, that's a problem that's coming. It's down the road. And yet we see how the world has been changing a lot over the decades. Is there something you could point to and say, no, no, it's not something that's coming. It's happening. This is it. Look, here's the evidence. You can see it. Well, we, we yes. I mean, it's clearly, it's clearly in our, it's in our face. I mean, it's right there. Uh, the number of uh, the number of days that we're starting to see um, uh, clear sky flooding uh, on the beach have, have have accelerated. There's no there, the evidence is unequivocal there. Uh, the uh, nighttime temperatures so it sounds like a funny thing, but nighttime temperatures it's unequivocal. They've warmed up, and people people know that. If you talk if you sort of probe and talk to people, they go. Oh, yeah, I used to be able to open my windows a lot more at night, and I can't do that anymore. And that sounds like, okay, what's the big deal? Now I'm running, yeah, so I'm running my air conditioning 24-7. Uh, you know, that's a problem, but, you know, it's not a big deal. But when you think about it on a socioeconomic level, there are people that economically count on being able to turn off their air conditioning at and communities can't do that anymore. So it's here. We're already experiencing. And we experience it in the built infrastructure, too. We have a saltwater intrusion in a lot, a lot of freshwater wells. Once that saltwater gets into that freshwater well, that's done. It's no longer potable. It's, it's done. The investment to make that, make that well potable again is, is too big. You may be able to use it for farming or something, but you're certainly not going to use it for, for uh, drinking water. Uh, so we have a lot of wells that have been uh, corrupted due to sea level rise and the saltwater intrusion in land. So, you know, it's here. We and we have to deal with it every day. You know, the other thing too obviously here is we because of the flooding, it's the water. We talk about sea level rise. But I think that, you know, the other thing too is there's uh, questions about how is this going to happen? 
when we hear scientists tell us it could be one, three, four, five feet in the next century, whatever, how is that going to happen? Is it is that a gradual rise or is that in spurts or what what can we expect in the next 50, 60 years as those waters rise? How is it going to come in? Lewis, this is a fabulous question. And uh, the reason it's a fabulous question is I think there's a tremendous about tremendous amount of confusion about this. And and we need to we need to change the conversation when we think about how we talk about sea level rise. One of the things that, that my group, my research group has been working on um, is a little bit is a little bit different way to start thinking about this. You know, what's the what's the challenge for people is how many days, you know, how many days during the year is there going to be street flooding in front of my house that's going to create a problem? You know, so the way I sort of think about it is how many days is there going to be six inches of water? for over six hours in front of my house. Is that gonna be 10 days a year, 20 days a year, 30 days a year? Instead of thinking about, well, it's rising five feet, 10 feet, whatever. That I don't think really helps people, but when they think about how many how many days is it gonna be that I actually, to get in and out of my house, is gonna be a royal pain. And and that's what we feel. So when are we gonna cross the threshold of seven, that there's a 70% chance that there's gonna be 70 days a year that you have six inches of water in front of your house for six hours. That's the way we should start talking about that. Now, as the sea level rises in many inches and up to feet, then people, you know, that's what's gonna make that, that street flooding problem. But we have to change the way we talk about it because sea level rises two feet doesn't mean there's two feet in front of your house 24 seven, you know, every day. What it means is that the, you're increasing the number of days where you're going to see six inches of flooding for six hours a day. That, you know, if that if the timing of that is terrible, then, you know, kids are going to have to, you know, you know, climb through that to get to school. You're, it's going to be a problem for you to get to work. It's going to create a big problem around your house. You're going to have to worry about sandbagging, all kinds of issues. So that's the way we should start having this conversation is how many days a year is it going to be? Uh, six inches of water for six hours in front of my house. I wanted to ask about that, the incident a couple, I think it was a couple of years ago with the, oh, it was just before the pandemic when you had the King Tide that came in in Key Largo and that water sat there for over a hundred days. Is that, right. is that an anomaly or is that something that we could expect? Well, we had, we had some of the biggest King Tides, you know, uh, just before the pandemic, we had some of the biggest King Tides and, Part of that, that's a really, that's, you know, we could talk about how we should be talking about sea level for, for days. And we, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but what, what we saw there, you know, it was, I think it was 90 days. Um, uh, what we, what we saw there was an exceptional uh, amount of flooding due to, you know, the, the tides are dependent upon the planetary rotate, you know, relationship of the sun and the moon and all these kinds of things. And there's a low frequency fluctuations of, of those things that will can give you just from that can give you a higher than normal king tide season. There's also natural fluctuations of the ocean circulation that can produce that king tide, that excessive king tide. And then there's the there's the chronic problem of sea level rise. So all of these things came together, if you will, for a perfect storm of sea level rise. That's going to happen more and more, right? The chronic problem is getting worse. The 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 
the ocean circulation part we think might be getting worse too as the climate changes. And of course, there's these natural fluctuations due to the gravitational pull of the planets. But uh, so there's always going to be these flux, you know, epochs where there's these, you know, much larger than, you know, that flat, smooth curve that we provide to the public. That's a misrepresentation. It's going to be high frequency ups and down wiggles. There's going to be periods of time where it's a lot bigger and periods of time. So it's going to go down a little bit. And we're, again, not communicating that, you know, if people say it's going to be, you know, 17 inches at 2040. That means in 2040 and the king tide in 24 is going to only be 17 inches. Maybe, maybe not. It could be tidal fluctuations, it could be circulation changes. All kinds of things could lead to an even larger uh, uh, increase in sea level rise in 2040. It was a really good day. Siempre okay. Fuma mucho mari, so I feel lost in space. It was a really good day. You are listening to the Planet Earth 2072 podcast, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Luis Hernandez. We're talking with Professor Ben Kurtman from the University of Miami. He's also the director of the Cooperative Institute for Marine and Atmospheric Studies. And he's also the program director of the IDSE Earth Systems. You can find links to his work and what all of these things are on our website, planetearth2072.com. So what do you think about what he said about how we're going to experience climate change in the coming decades? What will it feel like? You know, it's not going to be water just coming up. It's going to be flooding, flooding events that could last days, if not weeks at a time. And how many of those will we tolerate before we say, well, I've had enough. I got to get out of here. Share your thoughts on our website or on Facebook under Planet Earth 2072. By the way, there's a book that goes with this podcast I'm always mentioning. It's the Planet Earth 2072 science fiction novel, a collection of stories which take place in Miami and Las Vegas in the fall of 2072. You can read the first of those two stories for free right now on the website or on Wattpad. If you're on that, just look up Radio Host. Now, before we get back to our conversation, I wanted to tell you about another podcast from City of Dreams Media Incorporated. It's called The Reporter Studio, an inside look and what it's like to be a journalist. What do you know about the news media? Have you ever met a journalist? Welcome to the Reporter Studio. The first one was like the Superman phase, where it's like, I can do anything and I'll never be harmed. And then the second one was, I can do most things, maybe I'll be harmed. And then the third one was, something will happen to me. If Audience anger. Um, people are like, oh, these are fact checkers are just, you know, they're not really umpires. They're the liberal media. They're trying to put their thumb on the scales. But worse than that, like you'd be kind of horrified by the profanity and some of the- That's if you go to Mars, drop off, and then immediately come back. Like we're talking about something eight, nine, 10, 12 years, you're going to that planet. And while you're there, you're not on the surface of the planet. You're, you're stuck in your spacecraft or stuck underground because Nobody's patsy. And one thing I learned after the Iraq war is that you just cannot allow um, someone else to control. Today, it's a bit rough being a journalist. And sometimes I would agree, we deserve the criticism. But many of us are just ordinary people trying to do a job the best we can. Learn more about the reality of the lives of journalists at the Reporter Studio. 
Go to thereporterstudio.com and find the podcast on your podcast app. Find more at thereporterstudio.com. Let's get back to our conversation now with professor and scientist Ben Kurtman. I'd seen a number of, of your speeches on YouTube, and I believe this is one that you had at UM, but I think somebody had asked you the questions like, do you predict these things? Can you predict these things? And what we... Uh, what we can do, uh, certainly the, the the planetary part, the, the the gravitational pull part, we can do we can do quite a bit with. But what we what we can do, you know, one year out and maybe even five and ten years out, is we can provide a more uh, more detailed information, a, a plume of possible outcomes that's more refined than what we do now. We provide this, you know, smooth smooth curve, and I think I think that. Uh, runs the risk of people being overconfident in what that curve is telling you. And there's nothing worse than overconfidence. So if you're, you know, I'm sure it's going to be 17 inches and nothing more. If you're, and you start building things and spending a lot of money to protect yourself for 17 inches and all of a sudden 25 inches comes in, you're in big trouble. And so I think we should be, uh, we, we can use models and there are tools that give us a more refined estimate of what that range will be at some, at some timescales, five years, 10 years, we can do those things. Uh, I wanted to come back to what you were saying earlier about what Miami is trying to do to prepare for this future. And I mean, look, there's the, the, always the conversations of pumps, walls, you know, more mangrove trees and, you know, just even natural settings to try to do it. Uh, I know there was the piece recently in the New York Times, I believe you were even quoted in uh, mm-hmm. uh, from the Army Corps of Engineers saying, build a wall. And mm-hmm. that that I know is controversial with a lot of people. But I mean, when you look at Miami, when you look at South Florida and our geography and the way we're set up, and also the fact we're on top of an aquifer, we got the Everglades on the other side. Sure. Is it possible to protect this city, this region from water? Uh, well, I think th- I think uh, there are uh, things we can do on what I would call sort of the adaptation timescale. The adaptation timescale is, you know, mid-century, you know, 2050, maybe 2060. There are things we can certainly do to, to uh, make sure Florida, you know, Southern Florida is a place we want to live and, and, and work and, and vacation in. Uh, beyond that, uh, you really, really need to embrace the mitigation problem. So now you're getting into the mitigation timescales. And so adaptation, the way I think about it is adaptation is the certain amount of climate change that's going to happen. How are we going to adapt? What are we going to do to respond? A seawall is one way. I'm not particularly fond of that precise solution, but, but there are engineering solutions and adaptation solutions that you might want to uh, put in place. Beyond that, the longer time scales, the mitigation problem. That is, the we need to we need to get the CO two out of the atmosphere and stop stop the warming. And so, if we remain on this trajectory beyond 2060, we're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble. And in order to get off this trajectory, I think we're looking at you know uh, net zero emissions in about 15 years. Is that possible? 
Do you think? Are you optimistic? Well, it's tough, but look, you know, one of the biggest, one of the biggest contributors, one of the biggest contributors in the U.S. alone are automobiles. There's absolutely no reason at all why we couldn't be uh, an all-electric fleet, an all-electric fleet for automobiles by 20 uh, and 15 years. There's no reason, no reason at all. It could be done. It, re it requires a, you know, a will, a will to get that done. And that's the biggest contributor. I mean, you know, uh, high-speed transportation, airplanes and, and other, other forms of, that's an, another big contributor that's harder to deal with. But, uh, you know, uh, we could, you know, uh, collectively decide that in 15 years, there's going to be no more combustion engines for uh, personal transportation. That would, make, that would make a huge impact on U.S. Uh, carbon emissions. A huge impact, but there's still damage that's been done. There's still going to be something. We're committed. Do. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're committed. You know the well. Okay, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One, it takes about 30 years for the climate system to come to equilibrium. So what do I mean by that? Is you put in an additional CO2 molecule that that warms the climate, but that process of warming the climate and coming to equilibrium with that new CO2 concentration takes about 30 years. So the CO2 you're putting in today, we don't really know what that's going to do. We're not going to see the outcome until 30 years from today. If you turn your car on, you're affecting what's going to happen 30 years from today. Okay, that's one thing. Now, the other part of this that's really scary is a CO2 molecule, you know, something two to 4,000 years in the atmosphere before it falls out. <laughs> wow. Okay, so all of those things, so all of those things combined is the CO2 we're putting in today we're committed to having to adapt to that for the next 30 years. And so that's why I'm saying if you want to go beyond, you want to save South Florida beyond 2050, 2060, you need to, we need to be, we need to be at net zero in emissions in 15 years. The other thing too, I mean, we talk about sea level rise, we talk about the heat too, and and how temperatures yeah. are changing, as you said, even especially at night. But um, how about with weather? And how much do we understand about how it's affecting weather? And obviously, living in Florida, hurricanes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in a lot of the uh, what I what I like to call or what the community my community calls extreme events. So hurricanes are, are you know, extreme events. The that part of the science of understanding how climate climate change affects those kinds of extreme events is a lot harder because uh, we have uh, shorter records and uh, they're episodic things. However, there are some things we know that are going to be happening with hurricanes. We're quite, quite confident. The first is that we're going to see more category four and five storms. So the total hurricane counts are likely to be fairly similar. We're not seeing a big change in the total, total number of storms or anything like that. What we're seeing is stronger storms, a lot more strong storms. That's, that's a big problem, right? Uh, in terms of um, coastal impacts. So that's one issue that we're quite confident in. Another thing that we're quite confident in is that uh, the atmosphere is going to hold more water. These storms, uh, there's evidence that these storms are more are slower moving forward. And so what that their forward movement is slower. What that means is you got a lot more water to fall out of the sky. So you, you're, you know, you're comp what I what we call the compound flood risk. That is storm surge. Uh, and uh, combined with sea level rise, of course, and then 
uh, rain falling out of the sky, that compound flooding risk that you saw, you know, hints of during Harvey and, and uh, Irma and Maria and all that, uh, all of that and Dorian, all that compound flooding opportunity is uh, we expect that to increase with um, uh, climate change. So those are big issues. Those are big, challenging issues. So as we finish up here, you know, it's part of this podcast is, you know, talking with the youngest generation around now today, because they'll, they'll be around in 50 years. They'll, they'll see Miami in 50 years. And I've asked them about, you know, what their biggest concerns are, their anxieties. And they are very, you know, there's an anxiety there. They are a little scared for the future. Should they, should they be, should they be really scared for the future? Uh, Scared, I don't think is the right emotion. Is the right is not a it's not a necessarily a productive uh, emotion for them to to dig in on. Uh, what I what I think they should be doing is demanding from uh, 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 society and their politicians and their and their leaders and their decision makers that that you know they're the ones that have to live with this mess, and so uh, they should be demanding action. So I think uh, that's that's what I think they should be. It's not. I don't think they should be in fear. You know, uh, if you if you're if you're too fearful and you think you know there's nothing I can do, you know, you're going to buy a you know Lamborghini and a bottle of scotch and get in the car and drive off a cliff. Uh, you know, uh, and I, that's not what we. You know, it's it's not hopeless. There there are many many things that can be done on this adaptation timescale. And if we really embrace this mitigation problem and really try to work to net zero emissions in a reasonable amount of time, we, we can avoid this problem. So what I would want them to do is say, look, uh, I know how to solve this problem for my generation. You guys, you guys better get your act together and help us do it. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot here. I want you to imagine um, somehow you and I make it to 2072 or we just take a time machine there either way. And sure. uh, you step out. Tell me what you see. What do you think Miami looks like in 50 years? Well, I'm a very optimistic person. So what I think Miami's going to look like is a place that we're, we, are, we are living with more water. But we've figured out how to live with more water. There's going to be uh, people li- more people living on the water permanently, pods and things like that, permanent structures in the water. We're going to have a lot more canals. Our transportation system is going to have a, a lot more water-based. People are going to be uh, driving less, uh, more uh, co-located with public transportation. And I'm optimistic that in 2070, people will still want to come to Florida to live, work, and play. been listening to the planet earth 2072 podcast a production of city of dreams media incorporated thank you again for listening and thank you for your support if by the way you're listening to this on your podcast app please hit the subscribe button and if you can take a moment rate and review and then tell somebody about it we've been talking with professor ben kurtman from the university of miami we have links to all of his work at planetearth2072.com or on facebook under the same name Tell me what you think about what he said when it comes to predicting the future. I wonder if at times what I think about the future, and I was thinking about that as I was writing the novel, how much is the world going to change? In 50 years, how much will Miami change? 
How much will Las Vegas change? How much will your hometown change? I want to turn over to our next guest now, a Gen Zer. She's a senior at Gulliver Prep School in Miami-Dade County. She's also involved in the Clio Institute. We talked with her about the future of the climate crisis, what it means to her, and how she wants to help people. Let me introduce you to Maya Gouda. remember when you first learned about climate science and climate change? When did that happen? How did it happen? The first aspect of climate science that I learned about was mosquito-borne illnesses and its relation to the rising temperatures. I started researching about that in seventh grade for this passion project that I was doing. I wanted to find a way to reduce the transmission of mosquito-borne illnesses in Miami because I knew it was a very prevalent issue here as well as in many other communities around the world. And that's when I first started looking up malaria, dengue, and Zika. And I started researching how the rising heat temperatures like around the world were causing more illnesses to be transmitted easily. So that's when I first started learning about climate change and how that was causing for the global heat temperature to rise. I was going to say when I learned about that information, I wanted to educate Miami, the communities in Miami about it. And that's when I joined the Clio Institute, where I started to learn more about climate science. Yeah, and that was the second question I was going to ask you is how you got involved with Clio. Tell Tell me a little bit about what you do with Clio. It's really cool. Some of the stuff you do at your school. Yeah, so with Cleo, we did a lot of work, I would say, when I was in my freshman year. That was when, you know, there was no COVID then. And then I got my climate speaker certification from the Cleo Institute. So I was able to give presentations about climate science to people in my school as well as in other schools. And one really nice program that the Cleo has is CLIP, and that's the Climate Literacy Information Project, where I've recruited a few students in my school to give climate science presentations to students in lower grades. What would you say, Maya, is the attitude of, you know, a lot of the students that you've met and known throughout your life about climate science? Do most young people think about it? Do they talk about it? Is it important to them? I feel like a lot of students, they don't really know much about it. And some, you know, some teachers, they don't really like believe in climate change. So they'll tell people that we're just in this cycle and that it's just happening like it always has. And it's not that big of a deal that the temperature is rising, like as if we've seen it before. But although there is like that cycle, but we're seeing it at higher rates now. And those rates are only going up. And I think that's what people choose to like not believe or to you know, not understand that part of the science. And I feel like I would say I'm more surrounded by kids who are more privileged. And I feel like they are not affected by climate change, like firsthand, just because like, you know, like we have like those resources, fortunately, so they don't really see what's happening to our community. And I think that's very unfortunate. Let me come back to something you said a second ago. And I'm wondering how many people and who, you know, is it classmates? Is it teachers? who don't believe and are just telling you, well, it's just a cycle, no big deal. I would say I've had like a few teachers who have said that, 
they just like don't believe in the science wow. or like they've read the science and they don't understand it like completely. And so when, I mean, when you run into somebody who doesn't believe in the science, you know, wh- what do you say to them? Well, I try to say that it's, it's saying right there that we're seeing these rates at, like at an unprecedented like rate, like the temperature is rising more than it has before. And you can see that with the effects it has had like disproportionately on low income communities and people of color. And I think like these teachers, they don't, you know, they don't see that like many adults don't see that because they haven't experienced it. And it's very hard, I think, for people who haven't done like outside research and they're just reading certain news channels and like they don't have all of those perspectives to fully understand like what climate change actually is. You told me something that I thought was really interesting that uh, you reminded me about how Miami-Dade schools, they have a plan to be fully renewable energy by 2030, right? Yeah. What does that mean? What did they say? To have fully renewable energy is to just like use only renewables and to make a big sustainable change for their school specifically. Now, is that for your school too? But your school, no, because you go to a different, you you go to a private school, right? Yeah, I go to a, a private school and we have, we don't have a sustainability plan like that, but I'm hoping to start that with the environmental club in the next, you know, following school year so we can all work on it together. Mm-hmm. Tell, uh, so there is an environmental club at at the school? Yes. Tell me about what that club is like and what you guys do. What what's, what are some of the things you guys do? Some of the things we do is host beach cleanups. I know certain members of the group went to a few beaches this year and, you know, cleaned up all of the waste that was there. We hosted an Earth Day campaign for a week, which was a lot of fun and we also, I implemented CLIP through that and recruited a few students from there. I also started this program called C, and it's for it's called Students for Environmental Action, and that's about promoting climate literacy for elementary school kids about specific climate topics such as like the health impacts and impacts on certain countries. Mm. So when you approach your school, because this is your goal, is to get the school to have a renewable plan, what are you going to do? Do you, have you have you guys discussed how are you going to convince the school leaders and the parents that this is a good idea? Jump on board. I haven't talked to, about it to the club yet because I started thinking about it after Miami Dade had passed, and this this was towards the end of the school year. But I did talk about it with one of, I think he's like the dean of. Gulliver, I think that's his title, and he's very you know pro climate action. And he said that it would be a good idea, but there's a lot of research to do prior. And I was talking to Miss Lewis about that. You know, she's the founder of the Clio Institute, and so I'm going to do more research about it over the summer and come up with ways and how members of the environmental club and I can all work together to promote or to plan a proposal for the head of schools to look at it and, you know, see what we can do. So, I mean, look, you're halfway through high school, but uh, we talked about this. Um, what what would be your, your dream to study later in life? What do you want to do? I definitely want to study like health impacts of climate change and policy in regards to that and work on like an international scale. I think that would be really cool. It would be, what would be like a dream job or have you ever thought of that? I've kind of thought about like working 
for organizations like the World Health Organization mm -hmm. and working in, you know, the climate health sector of that, you know, like promoting equality through that. Thank you again for listening to this podcast, the Planet Earth 2072 podcast. You can find us on most podcast apps and online at planetearth2072.com or on Facebook under Planet Earth 2072. We're talking with high school senior, Gen Zer, and environmental activist Maya Gouda from Miami-Dade. I want to tell you about the book that goes with this podcast, by the way. You see, the idea started as a science fiction novel. It was called Planet Earth 2072. And the first story from that novel is available for free. Actually, the first two are. Just find us on the website, again, planetearth2072.com, or on Wattpad. If you're on that platform, I'm under Radio Host. The book is a collection of 12 separate stories, all of them interconnected, and it'll be out in 2023. Now, you can read those first two stories, again, on the website or on Wattpad. I want you to think about what Maya was talking about. You know, as a young woman, she cares deeply about her future, like many in her generation. But she's also thinking about those communities that are being harmed by the climate crisis more than others. Because again, those with means, those with money, will be able to work their way around this problem. And everybody else, well, it's going to impact them greatly. Let's get back to our conversation with Maya. So tell me how, you know, besides uh, the work that you do at Clio, tell me about how much you read and follow the news when it comes to climate change. And whenever a new story comes out or a new study comes out, how much are you following it? Or is it something that causes too much anxiety for you? You don't want to. I don't think it causes like any anxiety or like worries for me. I try to follow up as much as I can. What's really nice is that the climate groups that I'm a part of, we all have like WhatsApp group chats. So they'll send in like articles and I'll get to like read from there. And that's where I'll learn about like the Miami-Dade passing, the like reusable plan and you know, things like that. Mm. That's where I will usually read it from. But I definitely need to get into it a little bit more on my own. You know, you think about what politicians are doing right now. What do you think about, the, you know, like, the Miami is, is such a vulnerable city and we're going to get hit pretty hard if the seas rise a lot. But what do you think about what, you know, besides trying to slow it down, what can we do to protect the city? And as you said, we got to protect some of those vulnerable communities. How do we do that? I think that, you know, respective state governments, so like the Floridian government itself needs to start allocating resources to these low-income communities because, People in those communities, they don't have the resources to start fighting climate change for themselves. They're more worried about, you know, putting food on like the dinner plate and having access to clean water. They're not, you know, thinking about when the next hurricane is going to come and making sure that they have, you know, the money to pay for those type of damages, like hurricane damages. And I think that's something we need to take into account because those are the communities that are facing climate effects like right now and they have for a while. And we can't just keep ignoring that. Mm. That is a good answer. I hope the, the lawmakers in Tallahassee are listening. Um, you never know. They might. But um, let me ask you this. What do you do and how do you promote 
to, you know, within, you know, your age group uh, with your friends and your peers, what are some of the things that you guys do to, uh, to reduce your carbon footprint and be an example for everybody else to say, look, this is how you do it and we're doing it. So we try to do a lot of that, like promoting awareness about, you know, and the environment, reducing our carbon emissions through the Earth Day campaign. And we had like days, we had a theme for each day of the week. And one of the themes was having like Meatless Monday. So we had a full on vegan uh, cafeteria menu, which was really nice. And through the, like our, it's called the Raider Voice and it's our newspaper for the school. And we have like a broadcast show for our school and we created a video to promote what we were going to do for earth the earth week the week before and i think that got people ready for those you know the days like the meatless monday we had a reduce your fossil fuel friday and that's when people would send in pictures to the environmental club of them carpooling or biking or walking to school and i think that was really nice and we also had something where if you showed your teacher that if you were bringing a reusable water bottle, you can get a certain prize at the end of the week. Those are really cool ideas. Wow. Have you guys, I, I, have, have you folks ever tried getting it out to like making it like, a, you know, make it a hashtag and try to get more people involved? Yeah, I mean, we posted about it on our like Instagram, our environmental club Instagram. So okay. that's how we were trying to promote that for the rest of the school. It's you know what's interesting, Maya. You told me a second ago that you don't feel any anxiety about the future, and I I think I mentioned this to you, but I was I had read some articles uh, that your generation in general, just in general, does feel a bit of stress and anxiety about the future because we don't know what's going to happen. But you're 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 not worried. I do have a few worries. But I would say I overall have a lot of hope because I can see that more students are becoming more educated about climate change. And I'm trying to, you know, push that like initiative in Miami. And I feel like more kids are going to join the movement and more adults are also realizing the importance of it. And I think that, you know, maybe it's like 2050, but I feel that everyone is going to not everyone, but a lot of people are going to make the conscious effort to be sustainable. Mm. All right, let's take a journey. Let's go to the future, even further than 2050. Uh, I want you to imagine it's the year 2072. Uh, I don't know how old you're going to be then. Well, you're going to be in your 60s, right? Probably. Yeah. 50, 50 years from now, you're going to be in your 60s. Uh, if I make it to that year, I'm 100, but I don't know. We'll see. Uh, okay, so I want you to imagine it's 2072. And... We're standing, let's say we're standing on a building top overlooking Miami. Maya, tell me, what do you think the city's going to look like in that future? I feel like we'll have a lot of, you know, sustainable changes by then. I feel that in terms of the engineering sector, for instance, I feel like they're working more um, in regards to building items that are more built like in a sustainable fashion like tesla having the electric cars hopefully those will become much more affordable so you know more people like the population can use them too and we can lower our carbon emissions i think we'll focus more on you know having more greenery like around 
that definitely helps like having green rooftops and you know not cutting down the trees and i think that having a climate education like curriculum will also be definitely present especially in a city like miami that needs it and i feel like at a young age kids will start to you know understand what the climate crisis is and hopefully how they can help and families themselves will make you know their own sustainable changes at home like having you know a compost little station like at their house and you know biking more and you know things like that like i can definitely see Miami population doing that in 2072. <laughs> mm. All right. That's a very, very hopeful future. And you know what? There's no wrong answer to that question. I, I've heard all kinds of answers to that question. Some people are very skeptical and some people are very hopeful. And you know what? Let's, let's hope that you're right. So, uh, you know what? I'll, uh, let's finish with this. And I would say, you know, one of the important things, Maya, is that your generation, and I think one of the things I respect about your generation is that you're not waiting. You're not waiting until later in life to get involved. You are involved now. So you have an opportunity. Right now, you are speaking with older generations. You're speaking to millennials. You're speaking to my generation, Gen X. You're speaking to baby boomers. What's the message you want us to hear? What, what do you want to tell us and how we can help you? I think one way we can all help the community and ourselves is to acknowledge the problem and acknowledge that we do need to, you know, start caring about the people that are suffering. Even if you're part of the group that is more privileged and that is not dealing with climate effects on a regular basis, we still need to think about that in the future, you know, climate effects are going to progress and you are going to be affected no matter what that's not in your control. And I think that, you know, for acknowledging the problem now, we can definitely stop it from becoming much worse. And I think we need to think about that, like look into the future and see how can we make a more sustainable and healthier future for ourselves and for the younger generations to come. We've been talking with high school senior Maya Gouda from Miami-Dade, an environmental activist Gen Zer. Learn more about her on our website, planetearth2072.com, or on Facebook under Planet Earth 2072. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Don't forget, you can also find us on Instagram at Planet Earth Series. And thank you again for listening to the podcast and for supporting this podcast. Coming up in the next episode. You know, it's going to be harder to anticipate what is going to happen from day to day and so if we're building in these ways in which we can accommodate that uncertainty in our daily lives, um, that will, you know, help us to manage that uncertainty a little bit better. We're going to hear from FIU professor Tiffany Troxler and Gen Zer John Paul Mejia. I remember seeing something else, which was a, which was a different vision, but it, it was there in the midst of the rubble. It, it was a different vision that was present as well. And it was the sight of, you know, people from Miami, of all walks of life, rich, poor, black, Latino, white, building each other up and helping each other and sort of building back the communities that had been torn apart by this hurricane. And that stuck with me too. Catch episode eight of the Planet Earth 2072 podcast coming out in just a couple of weeks. And thanks again for listening. 
Thanks for supporting. You can follow more about our guests and the stories and articles that were used in the research for this podcast at planetearth2072.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.